All right, everybody. Welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. I'm a writer and a podcaster. I do other stuff. I co-host Blocked and Reported with Katie Herzog. I um, What else do I do? I have a newsletter, single-minded, jessesingle.substack.com. Over the years, you may have heard, I've written a little bit about the debate over youth gender medicine, about kids who feel strongly they're not the sex they were born as, uh, transitioning, going on puberty blockers to halt the start of puberty, uh, hormones to basically switch, develop the characteristics of the other sex, and wrote a story in The Atlantic about it in 2018. Um, it got some attention. A lot of people hated it. I, I stand by it. I think it was good. Of course I do. I'm biased. But um, the other day, I published something on my newsletter. It was the longest thing I'd written in a while. This was April 6th. If you go to jessysingle.substack.com, I said the other day. This was yesterday. My brain is very fuzzy at the moment because I was obsessed with this fucking paper and it took forever to write this piece. I headlined it. Researchers found puberty blockers and hormones didn't improve trans kids' mental health at their clinic. Then they published a study claiming the opposite. This is about a study called Mental Health Outcomes in Transgender and Non-Binary Youths Receiving Gender-Affirming Care. It was published in a journal called JAMA. That's Journal of the American Medical Association Network Open. JAMA Network Open late in February. Authors Diana Tordoff, Jonathan Wanta, Aaron Collin, Cecily Stepney, David Inwards Breland, and Kim Ahrens. See all those names on my article if you go there. And they went on sort of a little bit of a publicity tour where – uh, here's how one of the researchers put it on Reddit. Hold, please. Let me just find. I want to read this exactly because it, it sort of captures it. Transgender and non-binary youth who received gender-affirming medical care experienced greatly reduced rates of suicidality and depression over the course of 12 months. That sentence and a lot of the other publicity uh, released surrounding this study and the, and the University of Washington, Seattle, did a big publicity blitz around it that um, – culminated one of the authors going on Science Friday over and over and over. They claimed that the kids in these studies went on blockers or hormones and got better. And uh, the way they ran the study is they just took a group of kids who showed up at the Seattle Children's Gender Clinic, tracked them over a year at intake, meaning when they arrived at the clinic, three months, six months, 12 months. Uh, they basically gave them these self-report items, uh, asking them about their depression symptoms, their anxiety symptoms, and uh, suicidal ideation. Anyone who reads the media coverage of this study or who heard the uh, one of the authors talk about it on Science Friday would think the humo hormones and blockers not only work, but worked amazingly well to alleviate these trans kids' mental health problems. Actually, as I read in my piece, if you look at the data, that just wasn't the case. There's no sign hormones or blockers, and it was mostly hormones in the study. Of the kids who went on medicine, I think it was 82% um, uh, went on hormones, 18% went uh, 18 on blockers. Check check my piece. It's in there somewhere. Uh, they didn't improve. There was no evidence they improved. And if you read the study very carefully in the supplemental materials, you can see that. But it, it, it sort of takes like a little bit of a slightly trained eye to even – suss out what the researchers are saying because they present their data in such an unclear way. So my article is basically just like a deep dive into what was wrong with this study. Among other problems, the sample, which had 104 kids at baseline, by 12 months out, there are 57 kids left in the group who are on hormones or blockers, a grand total of seven who are not on hormones or blockers left in the study. You can't conclude anything 
from a study with such a small sample size in one wing of the study. It's just it, it gets to the point of basically statistical meaningless. So you should get jump in the queue, by the way, if you have any questions or comments. I'm going to get to college soon. But like this was an example of something that seems to happen over and over and over again, which is that these weak, underpowered studies, and sometimes studies that just literally don't find anything, get presented as evidence that hormones and blockers work. And what's going on sucks because you're talking about kids and you're talking about suicidality. suicidality. You're talking about like a really vulnerable patient population. And I think what's going on is that because there is this big right-wing push to ban these treatments outright, which is a terrible idea because some kids should go on them, or in the state of Texas, to take kids away from their parents if they seek this kind of care, it's like this feedback loop where then the left has to say, no, no, the, the study's great. There's no scientific questions. There's nothing wrong with this data. We basically, we have almost no good data on the long-term outcomes of kids who go on these treatments. It is dishonest to say anything but that. There's basically one cohort of kids from the Netherlands in a very different setting. Um, that's all the data we have. And countries like Sweden and Finland have really scaled back in their administration of these treatments. And in the States, they're now the center of a huge culture war, which is horrible for any conversation about medicine. So everything is really screwed up right now. But I, I find it alarming how often um, major medical journals and respectable institutions will like, I don't not always lie, but creep right up to the point of just lying about what's what's been found in this area. Uh, and I found that incredibly disturbing. And it's really bad. And I feel particularly bad for someone who's thinking about going on these treatments or a parent who's thinking about putting their kids on these treatments and just wants good information, which they deserve, and they just can't get it because everyone is full of shit. Uh, so that is most of my spiel. I mean, I can get into more of the details. This tends to be a subject where people have a lot of opinions and questions, so people should just get in the queue if they have any of those. Um, I guess I, I didn't even mention how they claimed there was improvement when there wasn't. Basically, they did a statistical technique that averages the four time periods. Rather than say, look at these kids who went on hormones, look at the kids who didn't go on hormones, one group got better, the other group didn't, the kids on hormones stayed the same. And they did this like really janky comparison between the kids who did and didn't go on hormones. The problem is the vast majority of the kids who didn't go on hormones dropped out of the study. So there's nothing like a clean comparison group between the kids who did and didn't go on hormones. And there's reason to speculate the kids who dropped out of the study dropped out of the study because they were doing fine. And if healthy kids are dropping out of the study, that would make the non-intervention group appear unhealthier over time. But that, that there's just no way to know from what they did that that was caused by them not accessing puberty blockers. I'm sure I didn't explain that as clearly as I could have. It's in the uh, paper. It's not my fault. Make next caller. Go ahead. You're going to want to unmute yourself, friend. A lot. It's not my fault. Try again. Yasin, I'm going to jump to you. It's not my fault. I'll bump you ahead if you get back in the queue, but it's not. Something's not working. What's up, Yasin? Yasin, you're going to want to uh, unmute yourself. There you go. I know. It's a little complicated. Hey, Jesse. Uh, big fan of your work, and I say this as an unbiased observer. Yasin is the, contri <laughs> the contributing writer to my newsletter, and I pay him to come in here and to just throw me softball questions. 
It, I, okay, I, I thought I signed an NDA, but but that's okay. <laughs> uh, what's up? Uh, so, uh, given that you wrote a book about essentially sh- uh, shitty uh, design studies, or shittily design studies, uh, how would you compare like this particular study to essentially the baseline uh, mediocrity? Uh, does it stand out in any particular fashion, or is this kind of part of the course, and it's not necessarily relegated as especially notable? Just yeah. because of the field. And I have a second question, if if you're available. Yeah, I mean, I'll just answer that one quickly. I, I think it's, there are definitely some studies I talk about in my book that are this bad. It's not like historically bad, but the standards in social science right now are so low that unfortunately it's not particularly surprising. I, I think it does sort of take to cojones to watch a group of kids over time, like vulnerable kids, watch their mental health not improve and then tell the media they got better. Like that's, fucking bad and i just think that's worse than like slightly exaggerating the strength of like power posing or i don't even remember what i wrote about the book came out a year ago it's too long but yeah so yes not this is not a historically bad study it's unfortunately in a long line of um tradition of of bad social science studies just on a particularly bad subject and the the manipulation of what they found in the media i think was particularly bad cool and so the follow-up uh, question I have is uh, the discussion around this topic feels kind of like n- raised up a notch in terms of histrionics because of the severe consequences involved. Because what you're essentially told, or at least like the mantra, the line is, uh, if these kids don't get the gender-affirming um, care that they need, uh, then they'll kill themselves. Uh, have you ever encountered anything of that degree in any other medical intervention study where it's framed in such a way that, you know, if you don't agree with this, you're contributing to death and suicidality. It's it's funny you ask that because the my initial draft of this piece that I published yesterday, the top of it was totally different. The top of it was like maybe four graphs being like, I wrote a book about shoddy social science. The worst thing that would happen when I covered these other examples of shoddy social science is people would ignore them. No one would accuse you of trying to kill people if you poke holes in grit or power posing or the implicit association test. But when I use the exact same tools to talk about uh, trans healthcare, suddenly you're trying to kill people. I was, I was talked out of that lead to the article wisely by a statistician. I trust. He just basically said like, you're making this too much about you, but, but which I was, he was right. The article's better without that bullshit at the top, but the bullshit is true. Like there's no other area I've come across. Where if you just if you ask the same sorts of questions about a paper that you should ask, if you're a critical consumer of science, you'll be accused of killing kids. It's sick. I I think there's probably some historical parallels. Like I think people who are against certain forms of recovered memory therapy face similar treatments. And there's like certain sub communities of folks with certain illnesses who I think will like really unleash on folks who are against their preferred treatments. But this is like a pretty unusual area uh, when it comes to that stuff. I, I answered your question, right? Yeah, you did. And by the way, uh, the mute button is, is really awkward in the calling app, so don't be too mad at, at the other people. They should fix that. Now get back to work, you yeah. see. All right, I will. Thank you. <laughs> Buddy. Uh, all right, it's not my fault. Let's see if we can get this right. There we go. Okay. Okay. Uh, mine is a statistical question. Um, I'm not 
sure how uh, how the treatment of the kids that answered yes that they had um, uh, used a drug or alcohol is being handled. So there's 34 of those people in the beginning, and they um, they're like it was a, an odds ratio of about four times more likely to have depression and uh, similarly high values for all, all the other mental health. Meaning kids who reported substance abuse were also four times more likely to have mental health problems. Right. Okay. And that was one of the most consistently statistically significant uh, findings throughout all the different models that they used. But I don't understand uh, how they kind of get tracked around in the the two um, uh, GEE models do, I guess, are they being tracked and controlled for? And is this like actually a good way of doing it? Um, it's hard for me to check that on the fly. I can, maybe I'll DM you after when I check that you, they're pretty opaque about their method. You like to even, I think to even see the exact model they use, you have to go to the supplementals to section two. I don't, I don't know. Um, and it's a perfectly fair question. It doesn't really impact my critique, but yeah, I'm not sure is the short answer, at least not on the fly, but I can, I can respond to you in DMs once, once I check. Okay. Um, so, I guess the reason I bring it up is mostly just from my perspective, it kind of looks like uh, if you have this particularly troubled group that it is more likely to be um uh, depressed or anxious or uh, suicidal, then um, then every other person in your study, basically. And if you don't keep track of which particular group they're in or if they drop out of the study, then that seems like uh, it seems like a, a design error. And from looking at the equation, I can't exactly tell whether or not um, they're sort of being adjusted for once in the beginning and they don't look at where they go or if it's not how this equation works. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Let, let me, let me try to check on that. Uh, there it's the amount of basic information lacking about their approach in this paper was pretty unusual, but I can, um, I can look into that and get back to you. Okay. Thanks, a, a, what is up? Hi, I apologize for being off topic. I just want to be quickly say, uh, listen to your talk with Destiny yesterday, or was it the day before, or three days ago. Uh, it was great. Thank you. Uh, uh, I've been following some of the response to it, and people really like it a lot. Um, they said, like, people were saying it's like the best talk on his stream in like years. Oh, shit. Seriously. I'm, I'm uh, flattered by that because I know he, he streams a lot, has a lot of people on. Yeah, people go to Destiny's YouTube channel. It was yesterday's stream, and I uh, I had a really good time talking to him. It's a, a different format than what I'm used to, but I um yeah I appreciate what he's doing. That was really fun. I was glad I did it. So I appreciate the recommendation. Yeah, the person who follows him, he uh, often is bored with his guests, but he clearly liked you a lot because he really appreciated your perspective. So yeah, I think I think for one, there's a lot of potential to find new fans. There's already a bunch of people who I've, I've seen who are interested in you through him just from that. I think it would be cool if you were maybe go on again or even get him back on 
onto Barpod. Anyway, that's I'm it. gonna, I'm yeah, no, I want to either have him on here or Barpod at some point because that that was good. I want to do more of it, but um, I appreciate it, man. I'm glad that I reached some new people by doing that. Awesome. Anyway, good job. Thank you, Pongo Two. What is up? Pongo two, two, you got to uh, unmute yourself. All right, I'm going to skip you. I'll jump you to the front of the queue if you come back. You're out, Chris. There we go. All right, am I unmuted? You're unmuted. There have been some unmuting issues today, but you accomplished it. Um, I just wanted to say that I really appreciate what you put out earlier. I read about two-thirds of it and couldn't get any further into it but all i really needed to see was that that table i mean i work with data all the time so that just even looking at that i immediately saw the issue and it was like how could anyone not (laughs) see the problem there it was just so blatant i don't understand yeah it's um it's frustrating to see the difference between what is actually in a paper and then how it is reported by the people who wrote it. I'll just say that. And it's, it's once you see how big that gap can be, it makes you have a lot less faith in science, which sucks because science is important and we should be able to trust it. I agree. And it's just, and the fact that they wouldn't respond to you is really disturbing. Well, they responded pretty quickly until I asked for the data. I forgot I left that out, but they said the raw data was available on their website. I pointed out that it wasn't. And then I never heard back from them again and was told by the media contact, they wouldn't have any further comment. So that's not a good, that's not a good approach to transparency. Yeah. I don't understand how, when you're arguing something that involves suicide or you know, people dying, it's, you can't, you can't skip that stuff. You got to be really able to back up the research you're providing. It's, One would think. Well, that's all I really had to say, but thanks again. Thanks, I really Chris. appreciated that. I appreciate it. Pongo, I'm at Pongo too. I'm going to bump you back to the front. If you can unmute yourself. Yes. Uh, yeah. If that worked. Yeah. I, there we go. Yeah. I'm stalled. Sorry. Um, yeah, uh, just first good work on like digging digging into this and uh, doing the actual due diligence on this. I have Thank very you. little hope that it's going to accomplish anything, but uh, you know, nope, nothing <laughs> ma- nothing matters. <laughs> yes, well, nothing matters. Um, I will say that though that um, you mentioned that you can't think of like an equivalent to this, and I think that's like true in general. But I can think of one thing that, in at least one pretty significant subculture, was equivalent, which was. Um, the push for uh, the push for like more widespread use of uh, opioid painkillers. Ah, that's a good example. That's yeah. um, because it, it, it wasn't like a society wide thing the way this is. I get this. I get the sense I wasn't really in a career back then, but it was much more limited to just like at, at the advocacy was much more limited and aimed straight at the prescribers. So it was really within medical culture rather than a generalized culture war thing. But um, I did a, when I was in medical school, I did a literature review on this. And like a lot of it was, there were a couple of like really widely cited, but very poor studies um, backing the claim that, you know, there's no such thing as like opioid addiction or, and um, there was an adoption of a bunch of new terminology to push it. For instance, they uh, invented the claim like pseudo addiction, which is just, uh, it's when someone's called an addict, but really they just don't have enough drugs and they're in pain. 
Wow. Um, I has and, has uh, this how much of this has been reported on or is in like the books about the opioid epidemic? I find that stuff fascinating. Um, I was it's been a long time since I've looked at it and I was looking at the primary sources because I was doing it as a lit review. But um yeah, I, I mean, I, I haven't I haven't looked at it very much. It's just it just sort of brought not lately anyway, it just sort of brought it back to me. But um, yeah, because there was like one aspect of this that is that was present there, although it wasn't framed as suicide, was the idea that, you know, if you're not doing this, you're hurting you're hurting people. Right. You're hurting patients. Yeah. Like there was this term. In other words, if you have any questions about opioids or their addictive potential, you, you don't care about or want to harm pain patients there was very this very similar thing with the whole gatekeeping concept where it's like you know doctors are just like forcing people to like you know it's it they're discriminating against people who have pain right or um and there was this term the the sixth vital sign which um in like a medical context is kind of a it's actually kind of a very very significant like rhetorical thing because like in a vital sign like we've got blood pressure heart rate temperature, et cetera. If somebody's blood pressure is low and you don't fix it, then you are like a negligent doctor, right? If somebody's heart rate is like 130 and it's staying that way and you haven't figured out why and fixed it, then you're like <laughs> risking that patient's life. So describing it as like the sixth vital sign, I think was kind of- The sixth vital sign meaning a patient's pain level? Yeah, exactly. Because it would gotcha. be, the, the five vital signs would be uh, heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, O2 sat, and- uh, God, what is the last one? Respiratory rate. But yeah, but basically they're vital. Vital signs are vital. If the vital signs are off, somebody could be dying. And uh, framing it that way and having a widespread adoption of it was basically saying, you know, if you're not doing this properly, you're like, you're killing your patient or something. But anyway, that that's was, interesting. That was what I thought of when I read that. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great analogy. If anyone listening wants to send me anything that's been written on those linguistic shifts and that activism, it's um, it sounds depressing as hell. I read a little bit about it. I had... Um, researcher named Keith Humphreys on, and I, he was a co-author on a recent major Lancet report about the opioid epidemic. And I think they have a quick mention of that in that paper. So maybe I'll ask him about it, but um, that's a really good analogy. Thank you for the call. Yeah, no worries. Joshua, what is up? Joshua of the uh, Blueberry Cobbler. Man, a lot of, uh, a lot of mute problems today. I believe Lenat is a new caller, and hopefully he or she or they can unmute themselves. Lenat. <laughs> I've never had such a... Oh, there we go. Hello? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, thank you, Jesse. Uh, I'm glad to... I've been listening for a while, and I'm glad to finally speak to you. Um, yeah, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about the study. Sure. Um, my question was, I think you... I guess the assumption was that that the group that did not receive any gender affirming care just dropped out. And I was trying to make sense of the numbers. And I was wondering if the reason why there was less, uh, there were such few at the end, I don't remember what it was, but it was less than seven at the very end. It's seven. Okay. So that the seven, was it because they, the others were absorbed into gender affirming care? They were treated with gender that's what I was. Yeah, I I was briefly freaking myself out last night for a few hours. I thought I'd gotten something wrong. I added a footnote to my piece, but um, some of the people from the nun group get absorbed. There's a nun group and the medicine group. And as the study progresses, some move from the nun group to the medicine group. 
But you can. There's a way to run the numbers based on the 12 month figures, and it's clear that the vast majority of the people in the study who drop out never got medicine. So there's some crossover, but mostly what's responsible for the nun group dwindling to almost zero is them dropping out of the study entirely. Okay. Right. Yeah. Cause it, I, I guess I, I didn't find the, the study to be that impressive just because, you know, the fact that they got, I mean, the way that I read the study, I did try to read the study and was, was that it wasn't that the group that got gender affirming care got so much better, but more that the one that didn't get any care gender affirming care got worse and the other one just kind of didn't get better. It was still depressed. But one thing I, to me, that's not surprising because one group is getting an intervention and I would just wonder like, just the installation of hope of getting some sort of. What, well, what, what you're saying would, would make sense if it was like, if you were really just comparing two groups that are otherwise similar, if it was like a right. ran, randomized trial, in this case, my argument is that, we have a lot of reasons to believe the two groups aren't similar. It could be the groups that don't get medicine are more mentally ill. It could be some of them aren't even gender dysphoric because the researchers give us so little detail about, they don't tell us why people might end up in the medicine group versus the no medicine group. And that is a big flaw in the study because there's just, there's no reason to think their comparisons are valid. And there's reasonable reasons to think that, for example, the healthy people who don't need medicine drop out of the study because why would they right. stay in contact with the clinic which would have the effect to give the illusion that that group is getting less healthy if that makes sense right right or even just that one group is obviously getting care and the other one is not getting care it's just and that and i was just wondering what what that impact of that does in yeah. terms of improving someone depression i also wondered the phq9 uh, it's pretty a pretty transparent measure. Everyone know. I mean, it's pretty obvious what they're getting at, like which direction, what you have to answer to feel more depressed. And I, one thing I, I wondered about, and I don't know, I don't, I, it wasn't, I didn't see it addressed in the study, was if they did absorb some of them, would there be a kind of like a, a secondary gain to, because it's such an obviously, uh, you know, to, if if they're, will they absorb those that are for put those that are being really depressed into care. And therefore, for that reason, there's some incentive to to answer that measure. Oh, interesting. Like patients know that they need to say they're messed up to get care. Could that affect how they fill it out? Right, right. If, if they do that, if they're like, oh, this person's too depressed, we better give this person gender-affirming care instead of keeping them in the no, no treatment group. That's one thing I wondered... I didn't see it addressed anywhere. It's just, it just, I just got the sense it was messy. It sounds like some of them were, did eventually receive gender affirming care and some of them uh, just dropped out and the numbers were just so different in the two yeah. groups. That, yeah. Uh, that no, these are all it, good points. I, and I also, I think one possibility is that some of the kids were too mentally ill to get the treatment. And that would mean that rather than it being the case that the group got worse because they didn't get treatment. They didn't get treatment because they were worse off. And, but we're only, all we can do is speculate here because the researchers provide so little information and this is too in the weeds to get into. They use a very blunt way of measuring depression in the first place. So the study, the study is just a complete mess. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day.
uh, it's not my fault. I'm just going to skip over to get to people who haven't talked yet, and I'll get back to you if I if I have time. Josie, what is up? Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, and Joshua, I'll I'll bump you to the front next, Joshua. But for now, Josie, what's up? Hi, I'll keep it quick. Um, I'm wondering if this study was based on a grant uh, that's publicly available, like from the NIH, and if so, did they pre-register? Um, there's yeah. there's okay. nothing about. I know they didn't pre-register because they would have said so. There's no pre-registration. I don't. The funding source was it a grant? The study was supported by Seattle Children's Hospital. Diana Tordoff reported grants from the National Institutes of Health. Yeah, there was NIH, there was NIH funding here, and I, I should admit I don't know exactly what that means in terms of their obligations to um, release data and stuff. Yeah, you can um, you can find the grants um, online if they're from the NIH and see what it was they were trying to do. Oh, because they had to put like a statement of what we're going to use this money for. Yes. Gotcha. Interesting. So there's a there's a website called Grantome actually that's pretty useful for that. You can search for any researcher and find all their grants. Oh, interesting. That uh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Thank you. Anything else, Josie? Nope. Cool. Thank you. Joshua bumping you up because we dropped you before. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. I mispronounced that, but you know what I mean. I do. I'm just excited to talk to the famous uh, celebrity found on Gawker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no comment. That's okay. They have the entire comment right exactly. there. Um, so for uh, dummies like me, you know, I, I saw kind of a fallout from the article, um, but I don't nearly have the intelligence or the statistics background as many of your more learned uh, followers. And so for someone like me, often I kind of rely on, uh, I guess, like debate and meeting of minds to kind of come to conclusions on many of these things. I was kind of curious because I saw you kind of went toe to toe with, I think, someone, Maggie, um, as well yeah. as some other people. And I'm wondering, do you think there's uh, anyone kind of, because again, it's not like you're anti-transition, but do you think there's anyone that would take an opposing uh, opinion on some of your stances and be willing to debate you um, in, in a good faith scenario on kind of the other side of this? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think debates range from useful to often counterproductive. I've I've tried to get people to just have conversations with me about that, and I'll frequently ask if people want to. Uh, Julia Serrano, I tried to see if she wanted to come on the podcast and say what she disagreed with. Michael Hobbs, who drives me crazy on Twitter. People don't seem to want to, and I think sometimes that's because it makes it harder to sort of like monster someone and misrepresent their views. I'd, I'd be open to doing something like that. I um, I had a couple things along those lines planned last year, and then I just I there's some personal stuff that got in the way, so I'd be very open to it. I... The thing from the guy Maggie, whatever on Twitter, without getting too into the weeds on that, he was basically arguing a that it's fine that the kids stayed stable instead of improving the kids on hormones, which I I don't think that's fine if you're then going to say they got better, and b he was making hey uh, a big deal out of the fact that the kids in the comparison group got worse. But the whole point of my article is like it's not a true comparison group; it's so different that you can't compare them. So I I thought he was just giving a very quick off the dome reaction to a piece that I'd, I'd spent a lot of time on trying to cross my D's and dot my I's. So I was a little bit annoyed at that, but you know, people can um, 
find that exchange and see what they think about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I hope there's some kind of dialogue that happens. In good faith. Dialogue would um, be a lot better be than the Twitter screaming going on. I'm, I'm open to it if folks uh, want to talk. Yeah. And just on that final note, it, it feels like a kind of truly depressing week this week in the sense of people who tend to have more kind of, you know, uh, calmer, you know, more reasonable uh, shades of gray opinions went like full on. If you, if, if, if your teacher comes out as gay, this is grooming your kid. It's completely insane. insane. And I think, I think young, I don't know. I, I think some people might be hearing those arguments and thinking that those arguments have something to do with like, more reasonable arguments about like at what age kids should be taught about gender identity stuff. Some of I'm sympathetic to some of those, but saying that if a teacher fucking comes out, they're a groomer is, is disgusting and is homophobic and ties into a very long history of trying to demonize gay people as like perverts who are trying to diddle your kids. It's just really fucked up. And seeing a resurgence of this like really ugly form of homophobia is just, I don't know, man, I find it disgusting, yeah. but it sounds like we're just agreeing with one another. Yeah, and and I, I don't know. I I think that there are a lot of people arguing out of bad faith in the fact of like uh, most people knew a little bit about their their teachers, mostly because as a child you were eager to grasp any and all hints. Yeah, we about were super curious about your teachers. Life. Yeah, and what yeah. what's disingenuous about it is you'll see conservative, mostly conservatives, arguing like, yeah, well, when I was a kid, we didn't you know we didn't know anything about our teachers' personal lives. Like, well, first of all your female teacher could talk about their husband without getting in trouble, let alone breaking the law in a way a male teacher couldn't talk about a male. I mean, it's just, it's completely different and it's just naive to pretend that it was the case that a heterosexual teacher would get in trouble for talking about their partner. It's, it's revisionist history. And it's just, I I've, it's been a very depressing week online on the front of just like everybody going crazy. So I have, I have not found it enjoyable. Yeah. Ditto. Okay. Well, thanks for hearing of me. Of course. Appreciate it. Patrick, what is up? Hey, hey, hey. Hello. Uh, so I kind of wanted to ask, because uh, I think you've been doing social science, uh, writing about it for a long while. How often do uh, the subjects, when you're looking into their kind of uh, theses and reports, actually share data with you? Because I noticed uh, when The Atlantic did that piece about the CDC's COVID study in the Arizona schools, they refused to share data. And with you, it sounded like they were going to give you data or they misled you and then just kind of didn't show it at all. Yeah. So our, I, I can understand the idea that you want to be proprietary about the information that you have. But if you're just trying to show, like, here's what my work is, if you're hiding it, 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 it just feels like there's something that you're trying to hide from people who would want to look. At yeah, it. that's a good question. It- it's a little bit complicated. I have not frequently asked for raw data. In this case, what I was going to do if I got it was hand it off to one of a couple people I know who would actually know how to check stuff and work with it. Um, it's unfortunately still pretty common to not share raw data. Sometimes there are legitimate reasons. Sometimes, like you said, it's proprietary or there's confidentiality issues. In this case, Diana Tordoff said we put the data on the website for transparency's sake and it just wasn't there. Um, the other thing is that you can often check on uh, the quality of a study in fairly steep detail without having the raw data. If they've actually done a competent job of like reporting what they should report, like 
in this study, we don't even know the average PHQ-9 scores, the, the average mental health scores of the people in the study at the different waves of data collection. Very basic stuff was missing. So that made it even harder than usual to make heads or tails of what they were doing. But I think the short answer is there is unfortunately a tendency to refuse to share data. But I think because of the replication crisis in psychology, the norm is shifting and it's becoming more and more frowned upon to not share your data. Yeah. Okay. Well, that kind of answers my question. Uh, I guess just for the other point would be about the school kind of thing. Uh, For the last point, I actually am kind of shocked about like the amount of people, uh, the stuff that people knew about their teachers. (laughs) I, I think it's crazy. I think it's definitely crazy for you to say like, oh, I have, like, a husband or whatever, if you're gay, like, kind of thing. That's crazy, and, like, the conservatives are being wacky about it. But I do think there's, and because my mom's a teacher, and she would say there's a fine line between uh, disclosing information that's uh, crossing the lines of professionalism, where it's like your students don't need to know all the kind of aspects of your life. And as a person who has had teachers who had, I would call, unprofessional, and one teacher who broke down into tears when her boyfriend broke up with her and kind of use the class as her kind of therapy session. Like that's not I th- good. I think that's like a fair line, but like, that's not, not clearly what like the crazy people on the right are coming out and like saying right now, where it's basically any mention that you've ever kissed a boy needs to be like frowned upon or whatever. Yeah. And that's not the, what the, the law they passed in Florida, the law they passed in Florida could have a chilling effect on much milder stuff. I'm with you. And there, look, there are these, there are these TikTok teachers who, not to diagnose from a distance, but some of them act like they have like narcissistic personalities. They seem, they seem horrible. They seem like they're sharing all sorts of personal stuff. There's obviously a professionalism line that should be respected, but that's different from what's going on or what, um, what the crazy conservatives are saying. Yeah. And I'm interested to see what the actual Florida law does because it's so purposefully vague that it could do anything, but like even the way how it's written, if, Instruction means that me talking about my spouse is instruction, and the way how it's written, it's not sexual orientation based. So I mean, any heterosexual parent would be prohibited as well. And I don't—it's really that, poorly written. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's going to survive. I'm actually interested to see what it is, but I do get like the kind of critique that like you're potentially putting teachers in a position to test out how a law works. But at the same hand, though, I think that both sides are kind of politicizing teachers more than they should be. And I I think that's what's going to happen is that if you're trying to turn this into a political battleground for indoctrination both ways, you're going to have these kind of fights, which I don't know. I'm kind of in the middle ground of saying like, maybe we should focus on making sure the kids in the kindergarten through third grade have like the basic skills that they need. (laughs) That's crazy. We need to be indoctrinating them with the right values. Come on. Yeah. But uh, that's kind of my piece, but thanks Patrick. uh, all right. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. <laughs> Appreciate it. It's not my fault. I'm bumping you to the end. I'm going to take um, Patrick and then Monique and then it, sorry, Shauna, Monique, and it's not my fault. And then that'll be it. Shauna, what's up? Okay. Un- I nailed the unmute you button. Completely so 10. Just, Perfect 10. I'm just patting myself on the back for a win today. Um, I had uh, two questions for you. The first one is at, uh, the upcoming, what's it called, the heterodox conference that you're attending. I know that you're going there uh, for bar pod, but is there any chance that not necessarily this specific study nor your specific article, but just a 
a specific speaker on on the problems of setting up poor statistical analysis or whatever better academic words that would be used. But that just seems like an excellent venue for having these hard discussions about how we're setting up studies, analysis, and communicating that analysis. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. That'd be a good idea. I think most of what Hadrox does is slightly a little bit more zoomed out and is more about maintaining a climate of open inquiry. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna check to see if they have anything planned on that. I bet they don't. It's a really good subject, but like there are other organizations dealing with like um, open science, like the I think it's the Open Science Institute at the University of Virginia, run by Brian Nozick, is one. Um, there are some institutions that like handle that kind of stuff. It's a vitally important thing, and it definitely intersects with the politicization of research. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just thought that um, I could see the overlap in that. Um, the second, I don't know if this is really a question, but going back to the prior caller's example of comparison to the opioid crisis, or at least how studies were set up uh, to sort of highlight the benefits of opioids and more importantly, the non-addictive nature of them in comparison to what's going on now with gender-affirming care and potential aspects of activism. I mean, I think that's a great comparison. I, But thinking through on the... On the oh, God, on the... I can't even talk now. But on the, um, you know, Opioid. when you have opioid. God, I don't know why I can't talk. Um, you know, that that wasn't activism. That was pure financial gain. So I just wonder what on, on the more modern, if we're going to try to compare the two, I just don't see the financial gain in the gender affirming care, specifically pharmaceuticals. I mean, I, I assume all of this is um, generic at this point. Yeah. So. Yeah. I've heard, I've never looked into this. There's some people who think like this is all being pushed really hard by big pharma. I don't get the sense that the number of kids who go on, like you're saying, pretty generic treatments is big enough for that to be a factor. So I think in that regard, um, maybe the comparison breaks down. But I, I think the opioid, opioid manufacturers were maybe in some cases able to weaponize patient groups. And they actually had astroturfed patient groups where they would pretend to be groups of patients, but really all their money came from big pharma. Um, so I agree with you. It's, it's different there in that I don't think there's the same direct corrupting role of money. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you as someone, so I used to be a pharma, pharmaceutical rep. I did not uh, uh, step into the realm. I mean, I'm a problematic person in many lights and that's just one of them prior career. Um, but I, I can tell you that with the financial incentive that, that drove a lot of these really bad practices down to the level of these reps and their discussion with doctors that were um, problematic at best, illegal at worst with long-term ramifications um, that I just don't see with the gender affirming care where you don't have 10 people coming into your office, trying to take you out to lunch. (laughs) Trans more kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's different. It's, it's more, it's more grassroots. I think it's well, grassroots and, there are obviously like powerful rights groups involved, but I, I agree. I, I think the what the other caller was saying about 
changes to language and trying to redefine certain things is true. But I, I think the difference you're pointing to is pretty important. Yeah, I, I mean, and not to say that there's not, especially at a place like Seattle Children's, there is money to be had, no doubt, because of the name that it's trying to make for itself in this specific area as, as someone who who lives not that far from there. I mean, make no mistake, there is prestige and money and grants to be found uh, that is certainly being supported and the accolades that I'm, I'm sure you're well versed in of what yeah. they're of what they're trying to do. Um, and then just to add on, I totally wanted to know what was going on in my uh, teachers' lives. They weren't ever willing to share. So it was always a, a topic of gossip in, in my various schools. So I remember um, being fascinated just... by it because they you just weren't used to think even just running into them in public or thinking about that was so weird because they're your teacher. They're not like a normal adult. Yeah. And I think uh, just a recommendation to you, Jesse, if you listen to other uh, podcasts besides Bar Pod, I mean, I know everyone listens to that 23 hours a day on repeat, but um, David French guests the remnant this week, and he has a really good discussion with uh, Jonathan Roch. I, I, I may not be pronouncing his last name, but they have a, a great discussion on the on the craziness. And just to reassure people that, um, you know, there are some not crazy conservatives out there that see the craziness and are trying to push. David back French on. is good, and I, I I tune in when he does podcasts, so I will check that out. Thank you, Shana. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Monique, second to last caller. I think you're a new caller. What's up? Hi, can you listen to me? I can. I can hear you. How's it going? Yes, very good. Uh, well, I wanted. I read the title of your article, and it reminded me of that case in which you said you misread a study. And when I read the word opposite, I was thinking, isn't that a very strong title? At least that it's going to veer people, to direct people into looking for, is it really, really the opposite? It's the exact opposite. And perhaps not pay attention to the careful discussion that you made. It reminded me. I mean, I saw dumb comments on the internet saying that it was not exactly the opposite, and it reminded me of that piece in which people didn't read what you said. You're, bas and, you're basically asking uh, whether I arguably overclaimed in my headline. Yes, if you would choose that title again. So I'm reading it. Researchers found puberty blockers and hormones didn't improve trans kids' mental health at their clinic. Then they published a study claiming the opposite. I think it's like, I think I slightly agree. I mean, the, by the opposite, I mean, these treatments didn't improve their mental health and they said they did. I think I'm on firm ground. I think you could make a case. Maybe I should have said publish a study claiming they did because twice in the study, they refer to that group's improvements. I mean, are you are you arguing that it's literally true, but like a little sensationalizing? Yes, yes, exactly that. I I am on your side in the sense that I believe people should not make exaggerated claims, but some people are a little bit more forgiving of that, yeah. and they will not pay attention to everything that you've pointed. That is was very careful and thank you, thoughtful, and perhaps less strong worded titles. <laughs> no, I, I think that's reasonable. I think when you're writing a headline, especially for something you're going to be posting on Twitter, 
you need to strike a balance. It has to be attention getting, but you don't want to be dishonest. So I think I'm in terms of my own ethical guidelines, as long as it's not strictly speaking false, I think I'll sometimes creep up to the line of a little bit, maybe more emotional, but I, I, I think that's a reasonable critique. Thank you. Good work. Thanks, Monique. I appreciate it. All right. It's not my fault. Finish this up. Or not. If the mic, I don't know why the uh, mic issue is so weird today, but um, there we go. Oh, hey. uh, my, my question was right about along those same lines, which is that when I think about your Atlantic article, uh, I think most of the criticism you generally boil down to people didn't read it and it was too long in the beginning part of it kind of uh, got people, uh, people were going to drop out at close to the beginning probably and not read the rest of it. And so I kind of wanted to get your perspective on why you decided that, you know, 10,000 words, including tons of stats was the right format for your complaints about this particular Was it 10,000 words? Jesus. I think so. Hold on. I'm going to fact check this in real time. Like, uh, it's like I'm Joe Rogan's producer. Uh, it is taking me a while to scroll all the way down. All right. With the footnotes, we're at fucking word count. Oh, this is very compelling audio. Um, yeah, uh, I think it's about 7,000 without the footnotes. Um, I don't know. I wanted I wanted to go deep. I wanted to I thought this was a particularly of the studies that have come out on the subject, this was pretty bad and I was really annoyed at how badly they misrepresented it and I wanted what I think is a pretty knockdown critique of the study that would get some circulation. Also, I just write long in general and I'm I don't have the benefit of a magazine editor insisting I keep things under five thousand words. So it was not a conscious decision. It was a it was I wanted to cover all my bases and have it be like a compelling critique and at the end of the day not everyone's going to read it but some people will read the whole thing as a follow-up question are you currently being treated for your autism no it's uh it's incurable they told me i see okay thank you (laughs) on that note uh thank you everyone for tuning in uh yeah this was good i I, there's some good questions a good healthy amount of a little bit of pushback uh, which i appreciate very open to doing a um conversation if not a debate with like folks who disagree like i've said they don't seem to want to i also like i I feel like i've exhibited a lot of patience and um i've really tried to explain myself over and over and over again so if they don't want to have a conversation that's fine that being said grateful for this platform grateful this piece got on a little bit and uh please spread the word about this show and please check out my other stuff thank you and uh yeah have a great day oh tomorrow uh 5.30 Eastern, I'm interviewing a guy from DSA Class Unity. This is the sort of subgroup of Democratic Socialists for America really concerned with class issues, and they have had fights with the people who want to talk more about race. I'm oversimplifying things a little bit, but it's a pretty interesting divide on the left, and I, I think that'll be worth tuning into. So please do. Farewell, everybody.